Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Lots of big news coming out this week. And with everything, the major story is the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away last week. In case you've been living under a rock and you might have missed it, shortly after her death, President Trump announced that he will be nominating someone for the open seat, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the Senate will vote on that nominee. Responding to this news, the left has gone cuckoo bananas, including our friends over at the Women's March, who have announced that they are going to hold a nationwide march to, quote, send an unmistakable message of our fierce opposition to Trump and his agenda including his attempt to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. Remember, as of this recording, we don't even know who the nominee is, and they're already against the nominee. Virginia, are you surprised? You know, I probably shouldn't be surprised by the actions of the Women's March. Uh, but quite frankly, I, I think I'm just surprised at their their candor. Um, because remember, this is the Women's March. President Trump has promised that he's going to nominate a woman. Uh, you would think even if they even if they were like, well, it's probably going to be a more conservative woman. We're not excited about that. You just, I guess, would think that they wouldn't be so adamantly already opposed before, like you say, Lauren, they even know this woman's name. They don't even know who it's going to be for sure. President Trump has a list of five. We know three of the names of that five. So it's it's just really interesting to see already that the Women's March is saying no matter who this person is, we're going to oppose them. We're going to shut this down. Uh, and almost in a way, I guess, saying that this is, you know, not something that is pro-woman, even though this is going to be a woman taking this seat on the bench. Yeah, you know, the expression is if someone shows you who they are, believe them. I think this just shows who the Women's March is. So this is all kind of breaking. Not that many details have come out. I mean, Virginia, maybe you and I will be at the Women's March in October to, so we can really report on what's going on to our listeners. But, yeah, just more and more crazy news. When when 2020 can't get any crazier, it just like it just I know. keeps going. It just does. It just does. It has this amazing ability to keep getting crazier. Well, and we are breaking down some of that craziness on today's show. So, Lauren, what do we have queued up? Up on today's Problematic Women, we remember the life and legacy of the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Supreme Court expert Elizabeth Slattery. And we discuss the future of the high court. Plus, millennials are not getting married and researchers are trying to figure out why. We discuss dating and marriage with the help of our colleague, Philip Reynolds. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Last Friday, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at the age of 87 after a long battle with cancer. Ginsburg was considered to be one of the most prominent female legal minds that this country has ever seen. And though we may disagree with some of her views and some of the things that she voted on, we do want to take some time during today's show 
to remember her legacy and the impact that she did have. And here to help us break down that legacy is our good friend, Elizabeth Slattery, the Senior Legal Fellow and Deputy Director of the Pacific Legal Foundation's Center for the Separation of Powers. Elizabeth, welcome back to Problematic Women. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. So you in uh, the Heritage Foundation's John Malcolm wrote a really wonderful piece for the Daily Signal last week detailing the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And you all describe her as a lioness of the law. And Ginsburg, she really did live such an incredible life. Can you just tell us a little bit more about her early years and how she came to be a lawyer? Sure. So she went to Harvard Law School in the 1950s. Uh, she actually followed her husband's path. He, he was a year ahead of her at the law school. And she was one of nine students, nine female students in a class of 500. And she tells this great story about having, uh, a, a, there was a dinner party or something at, at some point in her first year. And, and the dean turned to the women and said, tell me, why do you justify taking the place of a man in this class? And classic Ginsburg wit, she said, well, I'm at Harvard to learn about my husband's work so that I might become a more patient and understanding wife. And, you know, that was just classic Ginsburg. And of course, she went on to excel at Harvard, uh, ultimately graduate from, from Columbia because after her husband graduated a year ahead of her. Uh, she she followed him along to to New York City where he got his first job and so she graduated from Columbia tied for first in her class. Sadly, just like Sandra Day O'Connor, her contemporary, she couldn't find a job when she graduated. She she ultimately landed a clerkship with a district court judge, and she would find out years later that the uh, a professor or perhaps it was the dean at Columbia had. Um, had basically threatened the judge not to send any more clerks to him if he didn't take Ruth Ginsburg. And he promised if she didn't work out that he had another young man who would fill in for her if, if she didn't work out as a clerk. And well, she, she exceeded expectations as a clerk. She went on to become the first tenure track law professor uh, at, uh, at Columbia one of the only female tenure track law professors in the country at that time. And then of course uh, she entered the world of, of legal activism in the 1970s. So what are a few of the decisions that she is really well known for? What, what will the history books write of Ginsburg? Well, certainly the history books will, will start with the decisions that, uh, not the ones that she wrote perhaps, but the ones that she argued before the Supreme Court in the 1970s to advance equal rights for women. She argued six cases uh, throughout the 1970s. She started the ACLU's Women's Rights Project and she devised a litigation strategy that, that, that mirrored in some ways uh, what Thurgood Marshall had done for African-Americans. And she tried to attack laws that that put women on a pedestal she said they're not putting us on a pedestal they're putting us in a cage and women need to be treated on equal footing as men whether or not that is to their detriment so i think that's what the history books will will first recall is 
the strides that she made for women uh, throughout her, her cases in the 1970s. And then, of course, she was appointed first by Jimmy Carter to the D.C. Circuit, often called the stepping stone to the Supreme Court, uh, given how many of our justices have come from that Washington, D.C.-based court. Uh, and then she was elevated to the Supreme Court by President Clinton in, uh, in 1993. And I would note by a vote of 96 to 3, not something we see these days. Not at all. That's incredible. I, I hadn't realized that there was so much support right off the bat for her. That's, that's incredible just to hear some of her background. Uh, I, I love those stories of just fiery women that have gone on to succeed and really be trailblazers for all women. Um, and as President Trump is considering the next uh, nominee to fill that seat, it's exciting to hear that he is uh, planning to nominate another woman. So uh, I want to talk a little bit, though, about the timing, because there, there's contention, obviously, right now, uh, with some people saying that, you know, for the president to nominate someone as soon as Saturday, just about a week after Ginsburg passed, that that's not normal. What what is the norm as far as timing for the president after after a justice either passes or retires to then name the, the next one? Well, if you look at the the arc of history and the Supreme Court and nominations, you know there were some in the early in the early years where the process was very quick until the early twentieth century. Uh, we didn't even have Senate confirmation hearings. Uh, but of course, now that is baked into the process, and it's something that we expect. In, in recent years, the average confirmation takes about 11 weeks, um, and, and, and sometimes they are a little bit faster. Chief Justice Roberts was confirmed a little bit faster because, uh, of course, he was initially appointed to, to be an associate justice, and then the chief justice at the time, William Rehnquist, passed away, and President Bush moved him to the chief justice uh, spot and his nomination, his confirmation went through perhaps a little bit more swiftly because everyone wanted to have a chief justice at the start of the new court uh, term because this was, you know, in, in the summer leading up to, uh, to that term. So we know the names of three of the women that President Trump says are on his list of five. So I want to take a minute and talk a little bit about what we know of these women. So let's begin with Amy Comey Barrett. She serves on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. She's a graduate of Notre Dame and a mother of seven, actually. Uh, and you have interviewed her in the past. So can you just tell us a little bit more about her qualifications and why you think the president has put her on his short list of five? Well, Amy Barrett, Judge Barrett certainly has has a lot of support, a lot of, uh, you know, there's been a lot of outpouring for her, uh, even before there was actually a vacancy on the court. We've been hearing a lot about her name um, for, for a couple of years. And we do know that she was in the running for the seat that ultimately the nomination went to Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, so Judge Barrett, uh, she clerked at the D.C. Circuit for Judge Silberman and then for Justice Scalia. And she is, I'm told, beloved by the Scalia clerk network. Uh, she's very, very popular among, uh, among all of them. She, she worked in private practice uh, a brief stint in, in, in Washington, and she was part of the legal team uh, that actually represented President Bush in Bush v. Gore. Uh, she then went on to teach at primarily at Notre Dame for the bulk of her career, uh, for about 15 years, and she taught 
basically everything under the sun, federal courts, constitutional law, statutory interpretation, evidence, civil procedure, the list goes on. And she was a prolific writer in her time in, in the academy. Uh, she, she's written extensively about originalism, about the supervisory power of the Supreme Court, about federal court jurisdiction. And so, you know, her, her academic writings uh, are, are very extensive, and she's, she's clearly given a lot of thought uh, to, to how, how to approach the law. And, of course, as you mentioned, she's currently serving on the Seventh Circuit. Uh, this is the, the circuit court that covers Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. And she weathered a, a tough confirmation battle already. She exhibited uh, extreme grace under fire. Um, she was personally attacked for her religious beliefs, and senators during her confirmation hearing asked questions about um, about her religion, and 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 I think they maybe missed the part of the Constitution that that forbids religious tests as a qualification for for public office. Uh, but ultimately, she was confirmed, and we've seen uh, on on the bench that. She isn't following her Catholic views uh, to to guide uh, to guide her jurisprudence. She's she's doing what she she promised she would do and the oath that she swore, and she's uh, following the U.S. Constitution. So Barbara Lagoa is also one of those names on the list. Uh, she was nominated to the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals by the president in 2019, and she was actually confirmed by a bipartisan vote. There were only 15 Democrats that voted against her confirmation. Why, why do you see her as also being a strong candidate? Well, the fact that she was confirmed with only 15 no votes in, in these days is remarkable. Um, Judge Lagoa is, is from Miami. Uh, her parents fled, uh, fled Cuba during uh, Fidel Castro's reign. And she worked in private practice for a number of years. She's a former federal prosecutor uh, in Southern Florida. And she has um, quite a bit of legal, uh, of judicial experience. Um, first, uh, she, she served, I think, 13 years on a, a Florida, uh, the third district court of appeal. She was appointed by then Governor Jeb Bush. And then um, the current governor, DeSantis, uh, elevated her to the Florida Supreme Court in, uh, in early 2019. But it wasn't long uh, before President Trump um, snatched her up and uh, nominated her to the 11th Circuit, where she served since last December. Now, Allison Jones-Rushing, she's the other name that we know for sure is on this list of five. Um, and uh, she was uh, a graduate of Duke and in 2018 was nominated by the president to serve on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. So what do we know about Rushing's legal career? We're not hearing quite as much about her in the news, but what is known of her? Uh, well, Judge Rushing, she made headlines during her, her confirmation process because she's young. She's in her, her late 30s, and that is pretty young to be uh, to become a judge, but certainly within you know, within there, there have been plenty of other, particularly in, in President Trump's time, he, he's nominated um, many highly qualified individuals in, in their 30s. And, you know, if you go back to um, President Reagan's uh, time in office, he also nominated a number of people in their mid to late 30s who many of them are still, still on the bench today. Uh, a great example is Judge Edith Jones, who uh, is celebrating um, uh, I think her 35th year on 
on the bench uh, in, in the Fifth Circuit, and, and she has certainly uh, been an inspiring woman on the court as well. So Judge, Judge Rushing, she worked at Williams & Connolly, which is a, a, a big firm in, in Washington. She also clerked for Justice Thomas, um, and uh, I think before that she had clerked for Justice Gorsuch when he was on the Court of Appeals, and then uh, Judge Sentel on the D.C. Circuit. So she's uh, she's – uh, certainly well-rounded in, in her clerkships, and she, she worked on a number of Supreme Court matters uh, when she was at Williams and Connolly. So obviously, we are in an election year. Does the Constitution say anything regarding a president's right or authority to nominate a Supreme Court justice during an election year? No, the, the Constitution doesn't say anything about an election year or not an election year. That's, that's really just... Uh, to quote uh, our the the Democratic VP nominee uh, Kamala Harris, that's just politics, and uh, so we'll we'll see what happens. Well, obviously the president he has a number of, of very strong candidates to choose from, and you know I think most Americans are just hopeful that the process can really remain focused on constitutional issues. Are you hopeful that this nomination process can actually really stay professional and focused? on the Constitution? I, I certainly hope so, but one thing I would, I would point out is that the, the escalation we've seen over the nomination battles on the Supreme Court for the last 30 years, it's not going to fix itself. And I think one of the root problems is that too often we look to the Supreme Court to settle policy debates that should be should be argued in Congress or in state houses across the country. And we look to the U.S. Supreme Court to constitutionalize everything that we like or argue against everything that the other side, uh, you know, is a proponent of. And so I think until we have a proper understanding of the court's role in our system of government and until Congress takes back its role of actually legislating uh, I think that we'll only see this escalation continue and that every vacancy on the court will be treated like a, a four-alarm fire. Elizabeth, we just so appreciate you coming on, breaking this down for us. Really appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure having you on Problematic Women. Thanks so much for having me. Stay tuned because up next, Lauren and I welcome our friend and colleague, Philip Reynolds, to the show for an honest conversation about dating and marriage statistics among millennials. But first, school is back, and that means research papers. If you are looking for a great place to find research, look no further than the Heritage Foundation website. If you need scholarly sources on the economy, America's military and defense, international relations, healthcare, cybersecurity, trade, I could go on and on, then visit Heritage. Org. I used Heritage Research in many of my political science papers in college and found the breakdown of topics on the website to be so helpful to find the sources I needed. Visit heritage.org to find the information you need today. Millennials are not getting married. According to a new study by the Institute for Family Studies, Americans between the ages of 25 and 50 who have never married grew from only 9% in 1970 up to 35% in 2018. 35% of Americans ages 25 to 50 
have never stood at the altar and said, I do. 35%. That is an all-time high, according to the study. The age demographic, the ones who are not getting married, is primarily millennials. And the study points to the fact that this generation is in no hurry to get married. The average age to get wed these days is 28 for women and 30 for men. In 1970, Americans were usually married in their early 20s. Among low-income individuals, the marriage rates are even fewer, which you could maybe assume is a norm, but it's not. Back in the 1970s, the study reports that low- and middle-income individuals were equally as likely to get married. Pew Research predicts that if these marriage trends continue, one in every four Americans will likely remain unmarried forever. So researchers are trying to figure out why us young people are not getting married. Lauren and I, we will not pretend to have all of the answers, but since we are both single millennials, sorry to out us, Lauren, uh, we're going to try and break this down a little further. But Virginia and I thought it is a little unfair to just give the female perspective. And, you know, we love our male viewers. So we are excited to welcome on our show, boy, Philip Reynolds, <laughs> who also happens to be our colleague here at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome, Philip. Thanks for having me. Philip has appeared on the Daily Signal podcast and the Right Side of History. And I don't know if you all remember, but our April Fool's joke <laughs> included Philip. So he is not only one of the only men to ever be on the show, He's the first man to ever be on the show twice. That's wow, quite the honor, Philip. Uh, thank you. I'm quite, I'm very honored. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you know the the biggest question that we are all wondering is why are we single, <laughs> and why are so many of our twenty something and thirty something year old friends also single? Well, Virginia, well, I think if I knew the answer to that question, my life would be a lot <laughs> different. I would go a step further and say if we knew the answer to that question, we could probably solve uh, world hunger. But <laughs> that might be a stretch. But just a thought. <laughs> so, Philip, I'm, I guess I want to ask you because I feel like I pretty regularly find myself in conversation with with women around my age in their mid to late 20s, early 30s who are single and um and they're frankly they're they're frustrated with millennial men and I do want to give props to you. We went to college together. I've known you for a long time. I know you ask girls out. A lot of millennial <laughs> men do not though. And we have all sorts of guesses as to why that is. But I want to give you the first opportunity to tell us why do you think there seems to be this hesitancy on the part of young men today to just not really want to initiate as much as maybe we saw in, in former generations? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think there's it, like so many of the greatest dilemmas that people have faced throughout history. It's usually not just one thing. Um, there's usually kind of a tributary um, or multiple tributaries that pour into this river that is an issue. Um, one of the first things I think we could point to is just how different society sees gender roles. Um, you know, from the 1950s till now, we've just seen a major shift in what is and isn't considered normal um, for men and women to do in pretty much every aspect of society. And that includes, you know, and how we pursue romantic relationships. Um, 
you know, again, that is like one of probably a few different things. Um, I think one thing that has also changed is just how comfortable men and women are with platonic relationships. Um, you know, going to a liberal arts university, um, I had a lot of friends that, you know, were girls and they were just friends. There was nothing weird about that. Um, and I'm not sure that was as common as it is now a while back. Um, so I say that to say, I don't think that men necessarily need to ask women out to get to know them all the time with this normalization of being able to have a platonic relationship. Um, you know, I think for a while dating was sort of utilized as a vehicle for getting to know someone to see if you wanted to pursue them. Um, whereas now I don't see that happening so much. Um, I see people very comfortable as being friends with one another. Uh, and when you have that sort of climate, I, it just makes sense why we don't, I think so many men just aren't asking as many women out is because, you know, that you, the utility that dating served for a while has, has become somewhat obsolete. Yeah. And I could see if you've invested three years, four years into a friendship with someone, both for a female and a male, why would you want to risk that friendship that you've put so much into when, you know, dating can go real bad real quick? Right. And I think in some ways there isn't, there's a positive aspect to that and that we've seen um, how fruitful and healthy and good it is to have platonic relationships. But at the same time, in, in a way it has raised the stakes, you know, asking someone out now that you know and have known for maybe a couple of years is a lot different um, than, than what that would have meant a while back. I think that's a positive, it's a positive spin on it, I guess, because you know, if if essentially we're saying that fewer people are getting married or just that they're getting married later simply because uh, there is this kind of high value for friendship between guys and girls that, you know, they don't want to risk that. So maybe, you know, instead of asking the girl out year one, they'll wait till like year three. H have you all seen this played out like personally in your own lives where you know, you know, those two people that are like, oh, we're just friends. We're just friends. We're just friends. And then, you know, four years into just being friends, they get married. So I actually knew some people in Virginia. You may have known them well because uh, we went to the same college. But I knew some people in college who were um, they were a guy and a girl and they were just really, really good friends. And then I think their senior year, they started dating and now they're married with at least one child. So good on them. Um but yes, I have seen that happen where people, um, you know, remain friends for a while and, you know, maybe even had thoughts um, or had attractions towards one another. I think there's a Bonnie Vare song about this, um, Skinny Love, where basically you have, you know, the story of two people who are friends and they have feelings for each other, but neither ever um, really expresses those feelings. I could be getting the story wrong or when they do, it's too late. It's one of those. Um, but essentially, yeah, I, I feel like I've, I've witnessed that quite quite a number of times, kind of people passing as, as chips in the night. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned one thing about how, again, so many people are single. Um, I think we've, being single has become much more normalized. You know, I think for, for a long time, um, it was sort of strange to get into your, your mid to later 20s and still be single. Um and again, there may have been more reasons for that. I know, 
you know, jobs probably weren't as high paying um, or it wasn't as easy to find high paying jobs. So it made more sense to get married. So you could, you know, have two different incomes. Um, but again, as being single has become more and more and more uh, normalized, I think people have just become more comfortable with it. It's not seen as taboo. Um, it's not seen as weird to be, you know, 28 and single. It's actually pretty normal according to the the data that, um, you know, we're citing. Well, and I think I think that's so true, Philip, because I think for a lot of people, um, there's there's been a, a shift culturally to where, you know, maybe 50 or 60 years ago, a woman kind of more or less often went from living in her parents' house to then getting married to where now women are getting, you know, high power jobs and building these strong careers. They're able to take care of themselves. So they don't feel this pressure of like, okay, I quickly need to find a spouse so that I can have that security. They've built their own security. But I guess I also wonder, like, you know, how how does that also affect the man's perspective? Like, is there any sort of level of maybe intimidation is too strong of a word, but, you know, is it maybe a little bit more intimidating to pursue a woman who maybe makes more money than you or, you know, has this really impressive title or high power career and doesn't seem like she, quote unquote, needs a man, even if she wants one? Right. Yeah, I think. That's the, I think that, that, that simplifies it too much. You know, like I couldn't tell you what most of my friends make. I mean, I probably have like a idea, but you know, like I feel like if I felt like a man made less than me, it wouldn't, I mean, I don't think I'd date somebody who like doesn't have a job, you know, but like, I don't, I just feel like money with our generation isn't, it's more like do our dreams you know, match one another. Do our, you know, do we want the same thing at the end of, and, and, you know, I I do think there's a point somewhat with, you know, women now are more career focused, but I I just feel like that's kind of a symptom and not the real cause of it. Yeah. But maybe that element though, Lauren, that you hit on of, uh, you know, do, do our dreams align that does play a little bit into career. Cause it's like, well, you know, if I want to, you know, be a missionary and live overseas and, you know, you want to be a lawyer in Washington, D.C., like, how do we make that work? Whereas, you know, back in the day, you kind of only had one dream dream and you just kind of did that. But I think those two dreams, like, create a more fulfilled relationship now. I agree. I agree. Maybe we're just still figuring out how we can bring those two (laughs) things together and actually make it work well. What, What about social media? Do you all think that that plays a role that kind of the pressure of seeing, you know, people post these really cute pictures, these couple photos and these extravagant weddings. Do you feel like that adds pressure to where people are like, you know what, I just don't even want to, I don't even want to do this. Absolutely. 110%. You know, there are a few different kind of nuances that social media brings into this whole discussion. And I think one thing um, we hit on this earlier, this idea of kind of getting to know someone without, you know, needing to ask them out. I think social media has only helped facilitate that. Unfortunately, um, again, if you can get to know someone as a friend and kind of observe them, and again, social media is, depending on how someone uses it, it can be quite a way to observe someone. And I don't mean that in stalker, like a, a you know, creepy stalker way. Um, but again, you know, it, you can get to know someone 
quite a bit just through social media. But then, like you said, Virginia, um, I think social media has really created a culture of comparison. The problem is no two relationships look alike because no two people are just alike. Uh, we all have a, a very uniquely crafted individual identity, um, and people are complex. That said, it's really unhealthy, I think, to be comparing oneself to how other couples or other um, folks out there are doing relationships, how they are, you know, pursuing someone else, or even, you know, I think social media almost has taught us to fetishize um, love. And I, I just think that it's really not healthy for us to be consuming as much of it as we are and using it. Um, sort of as a roadmap or a compass for what relationship ought or ought not to look like. And I think, too, linked with the social media is the dating sites. And, you know, if you, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of single people are, are lonely, right? And so if you can open up your phone and start talking to somebody on Hinge or Bumble yeah. or, or connect with somebody on Facebook, that's a, a short kind of short-term fix. And you're like, okay, well, I've, you know, I talk to folks. I'm, But then, like, you're not craving that long-term relationship, I think, as much as if, if neither of those existed. Absolutely, yeah. I think social media does kind of fill a, depending on how you use it, again, um, it does sort of fill that void that both platonic and romantic relationship are meant to fill. Um, and you can sort of get a sense of connection and a sense of um, you're not missing out. When you're on social media, and unfortunately, those are that's just a that's just a facade. I think social media is just unhealthy for a lot of reasons. It does have some, there is some good to it, and we can do a lot of good with it. Um, but there are a lot of dangers to it that I think a lot of folks just tread into unaware. And in the area of relationships, it's just sadly true. I think though, if you haven't picked up on this. By the bone of air quote that Philip already dropped, he's kind of a little hipster. <laughs> <laughs> a bit rebellious to, to the trends, I guess. <laughs> well, so, I mean, when, when we look at these statistics, it, it is a little surprising to hear this study kind of come to the conclusion, or actually, I think it was Pew Research that came to the conclusion um, that, you know, if these trends continue, that one in four Americans are likely going to remain unmarried forever. Um, we know that marriage benefits society as a whole, that society is healthier when people are married. We know that there's crazy benefits to individuals that, you know, couples tend to together, you know, make more money. They actually tend to be healthier, both physically and mentally. Um, there's crazy amounts of research showing the benefits of marriage. So I guess are there... Are there solutions we should be talking about as far as like how do we actually encourage young people to begin to think of marriage not just sort of as this like old tradition thing and actually as no, that this is beneficial for you? I think the burden yeah. of it starts with the church. I mean, I can't think of any other institution that has a vested interest. And I don't mean to single out any churches that, that you know, I've attended in the past five or ten years, but there's – I think a lot of times singles outreach is kind of an afterthought. It's like, okay, uh, we haven't done a singles mixer. Let's um, pick a restaurant and have everybody go. But, like, that's just as awkward, you know? Like, why would you – it's not divided by any sort of age group. And I think it really falls more on single-sex 
studies, um, you know, for, for any religion. And I think this could even be taken to non-religious groups to, to really talk like we're, you know, talk like we're talking and even get more intimate with one another. And I think if, if people kind of talked about their loneliness and their desires and you kind of normalized singleness a little bit more and you don't want to say like, okay, everything's great. Like everything's sunshine and rainbows. You don't want to make people feel bad. I mean, if, if, if you are unhappy when you are single, you will be unhappy when you are married. That is that is one thing that is never going to change. And I think single people should take comfort in that, that if if it never happens for you and you are confident and you are living a, a happy life, you know, it is something that I would be sad to miss out on in my life. And, you know, I, I deeply want to be a mother, but I'm kind of putting my, my trust in the Lord here, right? Like if it's going to happen, it's going to happen on his time. And like, I can't force it to happen. But I think what we need to do is, is have these conversations. And, and, you know, I, I think it really, I, I don't want to make it fall on, on men, just like I didn't want to make it fall on women. But I think it really goes down to older men need to mentor younger men to, to talk about like, here's where I was without a woman. And here's how a woman helps my life. And here's how a woman can help your life. And I think women need to talk with other women. And, and, you know, like I have lots of married friends who who are mentors who mentor me in, in many ways in my life, but like they need to talk to one another. And, you know, like, is there ways that you could put yourself out there more? Like it doesn't, you don't have to go out and ask out every man on the street, but like these relationships that you have with friends that are just kind of platonic, like, do you make that first step or, you know, kind of like how do you put yourself in more situations where you will meet more of the men and the mate that you want to attract? So, yeah, I, I think it really goes down to going back to more traditional kind of situations. Like that doesn't mean give up all your guy friends or give up all your girlfriends, but kind of go back into people that you look up to, people that, you know, have been married and are in successful relationships and um, just, you know, be be honest with one another. You know, one thing. I think that has also happened is is the church's influence and in culture has been on the decline. Um, you know, I think the church really has done a good job of at least internally reinforcing the importance of the institution of marriage. I think the problem is, again, as the church's influence has declined in a lot of ways, um, we don't see that projected out onto culture in a broader sense. I do think that, you know, widely we are thing is that the statistics are showing um, that the institution of marriage isn't valued, and you have to value marriage, I think, to make it work. I just, I look at the people in my life, um, like my parents, who've just had a really amazing, successful marriage, um, and it's the type of thing you have to really believe in it to do it right. I think for people who don't really understand or value um, all the benefits of the institution of marriage, they see marriage maybe as a ball and chain. And I, that's even become a colloquialism, um, you know, in, in how people refer to marriage, unfortunately. And, you know, again, marriage is a commitment. You're, you're bonded really to someone else in life and death. It's a blood oath. I mean, it's a covenant. Um, I think the downside of our generation in our adaptability is that we also really, really crave um, freedom, transience, autonomy, and we're happy to wander. We're happy to try different things, different jobs. Um, we have that kind of wanderlust bug, I think. Um, and something like marriage that really is this oath that binds you to someone else to the point where you really are letting a part of yourself die to give birth to something better is something that just scares a lot of people. And again, if they don't see 
kind of the spiritual importance of that and the importance, um, you know, it, 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 it plays in society as a bedrock of society, then I just don't think they're as likely to buy into it as something that they need. No, all, all, all really great points, Philip. Um, we are running very low on time, so this is going to have to be a lightning round. And let's, I want to start with Virginia because she's been asking the questions. Do you think it is the man's role to ask a woman out or can a lady ask a man out? So I, I have seen very successful relationships where it began with the woman asking the man out. One of my good friends who's now married with two kids, uh, their relationship started with her asking him out. I personally tend to fall on the more traditional side of this where as a woman, like I'm just like, hey, I want to be pursued and I want to see that you have the guts to actually pursue me. So be a man and step up and ask me out. So that's that's my personal perspective. I, I have no problem with the women, the woman initiating. I think that they're just at some point, um, you know, for for men, it it is, I think, part of their DNA to be leaders. That's just kind of how the Lord created them. So I think at some point they need to feel like, okay, I I am leading, not not in a domineering way, but just I am, you know, I, I kind of have this place where I get to pursue, I, I get to, to be the honoring man and pursue her heart. And so if the woman is always the one leading, I think that can tend to, to wear a bit on a man. But I, I might be a little bit more in a traditional camp there. Philip? Yeah, I actually have to I, – I think um, my take on it falls very much in line with Virginia's in that I really think the man ought to do the asking out. And as a man, I can't say it is – it can be intimidating. Um, there is a sense of reward to that. I, I do think, like, if you're not intimidated or if you're not a little nervous, there's kind of something wrong with you probably, <laughs> or you don't care, which is also a whole other issue. Um <laughs> Again, I think the man ought to, at the same time, like Virginia said, there have been very successful relationships that have come out of uh, the woman initiating things. So some guys just need a nudge. um, But in general, I would say to fellow men, man up and ask a girl out. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Well, I can't think of any better place to leave it. Philip, thank you so much for joining the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. America is at a crossroads. Each day we see the penalties of progressive policies across our nation, while night after night our city streets are set ablaze by riots and rage. That's why the Heritage Foundation has developed a plan to help take our country back. The Citizen's Guide to Fight for America provides a series of heritage-recommended action items delivered to you each week. Make an impact in your community and in our country. Sign up for the Citizen's Guide at heritage.org slash 2020 and join in the fight for America today. Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Five very special women, the five women on President Trump's nomination list. 
As we talked with Elizabeth Slattery earlier in the show, we know three of the names on the president's list of potential SCOTUS nominees. But we want to celebrate all five of the women who the president is considering. Congrats to them. I am sure they are more excited to be on the president's list of qualified candidates for the Supreme Court. But I think they'd also be a little stoked to be our problematic woman of the week. Yeah, I mean, gosh, this is a pretty high honor. (laughs) I am sure these ladies are so excited to be crowned the problematic woman of the week. You know, a close second to being on President Trump's SCOTUS shortlist for being the next Supreme Court justice. You know, being problematic woman of the week is a great honor. So congratulations <laughs> to them. Well, and I think they deserve it. The attacks have already started coming. And I just I real quick want to bring up probably the worst one that I've seen. And this is on Yahoo.com. You know, I thought they just did email so who knew (laughs) but this is literally what they they posted article headline quote this is amy coney barrett one of the five women the potential rbg replacement who hates 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 your uterus oh my goodness there's no shame no shame like we're just gonna go for it and speak lies yeah this was posted on monday and it's still up like goodness she hates your uterus there is no there there is no fact ever written that, that, like, proves anything that Amy Coney Barrett hates her oh, uterus. I'm sure she loves world. your uterus because it creates children. And the fact that, like, that is a news headline. Yeah. yeah. This is what women read. And then, you know, oh, it just it drives, it drives me absolutely crazy. So congratulations. We are behind all of you awesome women on the list, you know. We just can't wait to find out who it is. I know. Saturday. Mark your calendars. All right. So last week, we asked you all if you were going to delete your Netflix account because of the Netflix film Cuties. This week's Twitter question is, what do you think is the greatest factor contributing to a decline in marriage among millennials? Number one, social media. Number two, career. Number three, and I think this is what I'm going to choose, the moral decay of society or four other and comment below. We really want to hear from you all, so we will be sharing this poll on the Daily Signal Twitter page as well as reposting on our Twitter pages. So please vote. We want to hear from you guys. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. I'm going to go off script a little bit, Virginia. Okay. Our rating has gone down a little bit. So anybody listening, please, I don't know who did it. I'm guessing some leftists who are mad that we're speaking truth, but please take a moment, pull out your phone and give us a five star rating because that just like, who wants to watch a 4.5 star show when you could watch a five star show like everybody knows we are. (laughs) I love it. Yes, please give us that five star review. And we want to hear your thoughts. Like genuinely, you can send us ideas for things you want to hear us talk about. We love hearing from you guys. I love going off script. And with that, have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.